Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi. I'm Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to the new and improved Gore Report. Spooky. Spooky. Yes. <laughs> so hi guys. We hope you're having a good week this week. We you definitely we are. are. Yeah. We share a brain so <laughs> We obviously invested in our sound quality a little bit, so if you've, like, suffered through the first four episodes... We're sorry. We're definitely sorry, but we thought the least we could do was not sound like we're underwater. We're still new and we're getting the hang of it. But (laughs) thanks, you guys, for listening and staying with us. Hopefully you can enjoy the non-drowning sound that we have to offer. Yes, so. so if you're new here, welcome. Welcome. And if you've stuck around this far, thank you. We love you. Thank you so much. All of the support and all of the requests coming in. This case was actually requested by Rod Munch on Facebook. Hi, Rob. (laughs) Is it Rod or Rob? It's Rod. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi, Rod. (laughs) So I knew nothing about this case until I researched it because this happened like back in 81, 82, and I wasn't born until 86, so. I wasn't familiar with it in in any way. I don't think I had even heard of it, which is crazy as much as I'm into true crime, but this is new to me and I've prevented myself from researching or learning anything because I wanted the fool's stomach dropping yes. through my asshole experience yeah. on the podcast episode so well not to mention i want you guys to understand that you're hearing it for the first time from us we do not go back and forth and let each other know you know we'll let each other know what case we're working on and if we have questions we'll ask but, one another but but we do not talk about any details between us because when you guys are hearing it for the first time so are we Exactly. We like to keep the raw reaction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll announce our social media uh, platforms at the end if you would like to follow us on anything else. We just kind of decided it would be better to put that at the end of the episode and save the beginning of the episode yeah. for introducing ourselves, thanking you guys, and just kind of getting ready to fucking buckle in uh, for whatever we're doing that week. So Also pay attention to new show notes that we're going to be doing. Yes, we're doing show notes now. Yes, so make sure you check out the description so that way you can get all of the know-how 
where we got some of our information, our so, sources, yeah. anything like documentaries that we may have watched, or just all the info we want to share with you guys regarding said case will be in our show notes section. So thank you again for listening. And I guess without stalling, I'm uh, ready slash really not fucking ready to get into today's episode. <laughs> yeah, so. he's only saying that because he saw how distraught I was. Oh, yeah. In our weekly teaser photo, every week, two days before we drop an episode, we'll post kind of like a, a hint of some sorts uh, alluding to what the next case is going to be. And let me tell you, I've known you for like 11 years now and I've never seen you just so outside of yourself not fucking okay so I was so shook I'm literally there's gonna be a funny picture of Ray uh shitting herself on that last teaser post if you haven't seen it so so one thing I would like to say about today's case uh we're covering the Chicago Ripper crew and Bitch, I hope you're ready for this. I'm not. I can go ahead and tell you I'm not. Because today's case is really extreme. So there will be descriptions of body mutilation, sexual deviance, cutting, assault, rape, cannibalism, some mentions of drug use, and satanic rituals. We would like to further say that this particular case in no way reflects beliefs or actions of people that practice or are followers of the satanic temple. I just want to go ahead and get that right out the way. And I speak for both of us when I say that we are not here to discriminate or give a false narrative about anyone's religious beliefs or practices. Definitely not. These are simply the facts as we know them. So if you think that today's case is going to be too much for you, that's totally okay. Just catch us next week for a less panic-inducing episode. (laughs) (laughs) The Ripper Crew, otherwise known as the Chicago Rippers, was a satanic cult run by Robin Gett, who, believe it or not... Once worked for the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. Oh, no fucking way. We were just talking literally a few days ago about how he was going to be on the the list of future cases for sure. During the peak of Gacy's killing spree, he contracted Get to do electrical work. Interesting. No one knows whether the two men discussed anything they had in common besides, like, their careers. Gotcha. And there's no documented criminal connections that have ever been established between Gacy and Get. Okay. The media at that time believed these actions to be carried out by a singular person, so they dubbed him Jack the Ripper. But I'm gonna tell you right now, this case makes Jack the Ripper look like an amateur. And that's kind of fucking scary. So, woo! (laughs) (laughs) So it later came out that Robin Gett was joined by three of his associates. Edward Spritzer, along with brothers Andrew and Thomas Cacorialis. Authorities suspected these men of the kidnapping, torture, and disappearances of 18 to 20 women that they snatched from the streets of Chicago, Illinois. Oh my god. These murders were so gruesome, it's known as one of the most brutal crimes in the history of the Midwest. Holy shit. Every woman in Chicago, from the time she left her house to the time she returned home, if you were a woman and they spotted you, that was it. Oh, so they had like... 
they had no uh, preference of no. like type of victim. They like just kind of their victim range was so large. So if you got seen, you were dead pretty much. That's, Your safety was pending at any hour. <laughs> that's that's fucking scary. So they literally took anyone that they could find as long as they were alone and looked vulnerable. And Robin gets. Only requirement for these victims is that they have large breasts. Okay. So <laughs> Laughs nervously. Right. So going forward with this knowledge, I've done my best to give you guys like the timeline of events. So I went with the first victim and what the court documents said happened. Gotcha. Yeah. So. And you're going to do that with each person. Yes, of what I could find. Gotcha, gotcha. Because there are some victims that I couldn't find, even with searching court documents. Oh, it's wow. It's like they were never spoken about. That's sad. Grab a drink, a snack if you dare. And probably also something for your fucking nerves. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up for the carnage of the Chicago Ripper crew. In May 1981, Edward Spritzer was living in the Rip Van Winkle Motel and working at Winchell's Donut Shop. While working there, he met a man named Robin Gett, who occasionally would visit the shop, usually after midnight. Gotcha. And one night, Edward's car wouldn't start, and his supervisor was supposed to give him a ride into Chicago, but either he didn't show up or he left work before Edward did. Well, that's shitty. So... Since he was kind of stranded, he saw Robin and asked him for a ride, and he agreed. So they had been riding in the van for some time. Then decided to pick up some whores. Oh, that's fucking disgusting. So this already gives you, like, some insight of how they viewed their victims. Um, Complete fucking pigs. Right. So they get into Chicago. Robin took Edward to the back of the van and told him that when they found a whore they wanted to get rid of, he was to stay there in the back of the van until he heard two taps. And then when he heard it, he was supposed to come help. And Robin was like, oh, don't worry. You're not going to get into any trouble. So what? This is making my stomach turn already. Yeah. So... If the guy is sitting there telling you, oh, don't worry, you're not going to get in any trouble, like, you should be worried at that point. Like, what are you about to get me into? Yeah, or at least, I mean, I would. (laughs) So after Edward had entered the rear of the van, he heard Robin speaking with someone. Someone that Edward described as having a uh, black female voice. She entered the front part of his van, and there was this plywood partition that was built behind the two front seats to separate the front from the back of the van. Okay. And this poor woman had no idea of these men. She only thought it was one man. So she had no idea of the intentions. Like, someone was literally waiting back there to do God knows what. Yeah, it's like not only did she not know that there was another person, but she also didn't know how fucking evil the two were. So that's heartbreaking. After a brief discussion overheard by Edward, Robin gave her a couple of pills. The three men then drove west for approximately 30 minutes, and I'm gathering to give time for the pills to kick in. So when the van stopped... 
Edward heard the two taps, and he left from the rear of the van, meeting Robin outside, like, the front passenger door, and he was holding a pair of handcuffs and a knife. The woman sitting in the front passenger seat and get pulled her out the van, handcuffed her wrist, and then pushed her into a wooded or bushy area a short distance from the van. After Get had been in the bushes for five minutes with her, Edward heard moaning, and she then said, Why are you doing this to me? What are you doing to me? Oh, my God. Hearing Robin whistle, Edward went over to the bushes, where he saw that Robin had severed one of her breasts. He did what? And then proceeded to have intercourse with the hole that he made. Oh my god, if you uh, if you guys could see my face right now, I'm literally like... Her severed breast no was words. lying next to her on the grass. Oh my god. Robin then told Edward to get some wire from the van, and when he returned from the van with the wire, Get told him what to do, and he used that wire to sever her other breast. Oh my fucking god, with a wire? Edward then Holy shit. took his turn and had intercourse with the other hole. Oh my fucking god. After he finished, Robin picked up the wire and the two severed breasts, and she was left in the bushes to die. And then the two men left the scene and drove to Edward's mother's house. How in the fuck do you literally just completely brutalize someone, sever a woman's breast, and then go to your fucking mom's house? Like, that is so fucking beyond. That is so beyond to me. In a second statement that was given later on, because that was the first statement. So, in a second statement given later on, Edward gave a different version of these events to Assistant State Attorney Buke on November 8th of 1982. In this statement, Edward added that Andrew Kokorialis was also present. And when she began to scream, Andrew punched her, knocking her into the rear of the van. Looking at pictures when I did my research, the plywood partition looked like it had a door in the middle of it. So, personally, I'm unsure whether every single time they did this, he would get out of the rear of the van and come around. Or if he just came through the door and pulled them back there. Oh my god. But that's, that's my own opinion, my own conclusion, based on the research that I've done. She continued to scream. He and Edward, quote, punched her several times in the face until she shut up. What the fuck? They then drove to the Rip Van Winkle Motel, now renamed as the Brer Rabbit Motel. Because, obviously, if you find a body (laughs) there at the motel. But they took her to Edward's room where he had been staying. And after she was gagged and handcuffed to the bedpost, Robin, Andrew, and Edward each took their turns raping her. Oh, my God. At several points, Andrew sexually assaulted her with a Coke bottle. And later, they took her from the motel and killed her, as Edward had described in his earlier statement. Um, He admitted that supposedly on Get's orders, after Get had removed the first breast, he himself took the wire and removed the second breast. And he also admitted placing his erect penis in the wound on her chest where her breast had been and leaving it there for some period of time shorter than five minutes. Oh my fucking God. So since Edward named Andrew Kokorialis in his statement, I also dug up Andrew's court records as well. And he stated that Get and Spritzer dragged her to a field behind the motel where they raped her. 
So they're all giving different stories about what took place. Andrew returned to the van and sat in the front seat. And afterwards, Get removed a homemade hatchet from the back of his pants and struck the woman three or four times in the chest, almost like to conceal what they had done. So the wire that was used was a piano wire to amputate the breast. Jesus. Which was pulled and tightened repeatedly until it cut through the breast and amputated it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Get returned to the van a short time later with blood on his hands and on the hatchet. He stated that he watched in shock as Get struck the victim with the axe and that he didn't know what was going on. Bullshit. I don't believe that. There's no fucking way he didn't know what was going on. I'm sorry. So everyone at the motel reported this terrible odor and it had to be from somewhere near it because the smell was growing worse by the day. The motel manager walked out into like this trash strewn field behind the motel because he thought that it was just a dead animal because that wasn't uncommon for this area. Yeah. Gotcha. So he thought he could get rid of it and what he found instead was the body of a young woman oh my god and sources say one of my sources say that she consisted largely of bones and some clinging flesh oh my god so whether there's environmental factors beside what had already been done to her body and her being dead yeah so she was badly decomposed face down in the weeds wearing a torn sweater no pants, and her underwear was intentionally pulled down to her knees. Oh, my God. She had been bound with what police noted to be expensive nickel-plated handcuffs. She had some cloth in her mouth that her killers used as a gag. Her body had been mutilated with cuts all over her. Her breasts had been amputated all the way down to the chest wall. Oh, my God. It was painfully obvious that she had been repeatedly raped, And one thing the police noticed was the $17 tucked into her sock. She was identified as 28-year-old Linda Sutton through dental records and fingerprints. She was abducted sometime after 11 p.m. on May 23, 1981. That was the time she was last seen alive. She had been dead for three days before she was eventually found. So we're talking three days of decomposition. Knowing the second half of Edward's statement, it appears out of all the sources that I checked, they kept her in that room handcuffed to the bed and tortured and sexually assaulted her for a week. A fucking week? A fucking week. Oh my god. The autopsy was carried out by Dr. David Barrett, Director of Pathology at Central DuPage Hospital, and this is what the autopsy revealed, and I quote, The victim's breast and anterior chest wall were absent and several ribs in disarray. He found nicks and cuts on numerous places of the victim's ribs that were made by a sharp blade or object. It was concluded that Linda died of stab wounds and obvious blood loss. Oh my god. So the detectives then reached out to Chicago PD because the money in her sock was an indicator that she could have been a city working girl. Because some of the prostitutes would actually hide their money in their sock. Gotcha. I was going to ask, but I figured you would explain it. So, upon mentioning the money stuff sock to Chicago detectives, they confirmed that this was indeed a regular tactic that was used, and she was also known to them. Arrests and such. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Linda Sutton was a mother of two and worked as a sex worker. She had been living with her mother at the time of her disappearance. 
cases involving prostitutes are really hard to solve. They could have been anywhere. They could have seen anyone, you know? And there's also that, like with some killers you see, they would go for a certain demographic of victim, uh, going for people that are known as, quote, less dead. Like which, dregs of society. Um, people that don't have connections with their family or good relationships with their family. People that, by their logic, wouldn't be missed or have people looking for them. You right. know, less dead, which I think is disgusting. But right. you, you do see that a lot. The detectives had no leads, so unfortunately, Linda's case went cold. That's sad. The second killing took place on July 1st, 1981, slightly over a month after the murder of Linda Sutton. Edward and Robin picked up a female hitchhiker near North Avenue and Route 83. They again gave her some pills and she became spacey. Um, Some people would actually drug their victims as a way to pacify them. Yeah, you do see that a lot as well. So Get drove to a cemetery where he parked, pulled the woman out of the van, and struck her twice with a baseball bat. Oh my god. Five minutes later, he returned to the van with the bat and her breast. Oh my god, so these guys clearly have a fucking set pattern, like what they do to each victim, from what it seems like so far anyway. Oh yeah, one of the sources that I read, Get would often boast about he comes from a very long line of breast men. That, I have no fucking words, like, okay. (laughs) But his type of, where he got his pleasure was actually causing people pain. Yeah, he was a fucking sadist. The identity of this woman is unknown. The third killing took place in August of 1981. Robin gave Edward a ride to Winchell's Donut Shop to pick up his paycheck, and they saw another hitchhiker. Get told him to get into the rear of the van. Robin then picked the hitchhiker up and drove to a forest preserve this time. He stopped the van, tapped twice. Edward came with the handcuffs and the knife. And he gave the knife and handcuffs to Robin, who then put the handcuffs on the woman. Robin told Edward to stay near the van while he took the woman into a wooded area. And as he sat in the van, he saw Robin knock the woman down. Five minutes later, he returned to the van with the breast. Jesus. The identity of this woman is also unknown. The only reason I know about those two victims is from testimony. Okay. The bodies were never found. Oh, shit. Okay. Because when they brought these men into testimony, they, like, immediately opened up. About everything they had done, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Like, squealing on each other and stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. Almost a year later, this is in the suburbs of Elmhurst, Illinois. Police received a call at 9 a.m. on May 15, 1982. 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski was abducted outside the Remax Realtor's office where she worked. Oh, my God. Coworkers arrived to find the door was still locked. So she had been abducted in daylight before 9 a.m. Like, as she was going into work, like, she didn't even make it from her car. That, oh my god, that's scary. Lori's keys, some cosmetic items, and her shoes had been found laying on the ground in the parking lot, not too far from the door. Her items were found by one of her co-workers. She had always been very dependable of showing up on time and unlocking the office. So they got suspicious when she didn't unlock the door that morning. Right. Gotcha. And then finding the items on the ground... They reported her missing. Immediately. Oh my god. Lori's parents were notified that she was missing. 
Now, I'm going to insert a clip here from American Occult's episode covering the Chicago Rippers. I don't have a title of this episode for you. Um, I actually found this whole documentary on YouTube. So, the following clip is from an interview with Lorraine Borowski. She shares a namesake with her daughter, so they're both named Lorraine. Gotcha. I'll also link this documentary in the show notes. Um, this clip is about 30 to 35 seconds long, so if you'd rather not hear it, you can skip ahead. Playing clip now. I couldn't comprehend her missing. I mean, Lori missing? Well, she'd expect us to go look for her. So we went straight to her apartment. And uh, there was nothing out of place. Her, her, everything was neat as a pen. We couldn't figure how she would be gone like that. You know, just all of a sudden she's gone. That breaks my heart so much. Isn't that the most heartbreaking shit ever? I couldn't even fucking imagine. I truly couldn't. Her family was desperately trying to find her. And, like, they were handing out flyers and talking to her friends, going to her apartment to find any clues. I can only imagine how horrifying that whole ordeal would be, especially for a mother. I definitely couldn't imagine it. I have another clip from the same documentary interviewing Lorraine Borowski again on the death of her daughter. She gives us some insight on how things were perceived from her end and what her experience was like for her. Uh, this clip is about 25 seconds long. Skip if you need to. Playing clip now. I don't think I slept after that. I, I don't think so, because when your child's missing, you're looking. I would carry a white sheet. I was going to cover her I found her. There were no leads at all, again. So, Detective Commander John Milner, who was also a certified investigative hypnotist, contacted people who were potential witnesses since they were in the area during Lori's abduction. Okay. So he put them under what's called regression hypnosis to try to get anything that would be crucial to Lori's disappearance that they would have otherwise forgotten. They're trying to get memories or something maybe suppressed from the subconscious. Right. So one recalled seeing an orange or red van in the parking lot. So John reached out to the other agencies for potential abduction attempts involving a red or orange van. This was the only lead they had to go on at that time. Tips would come in, but they would eventually go nowhere. In Edward's statement, he said he and Get went out in the van looking for a girl. When they didn't find one, they stopped to eat and drink a beer at 7 a.m. Edward went to sleep in the rear of the van. He later heard noises and saw that they were parked in a cemetery. When he looked around to find Robin, he saw him near a tombstone, stabbing someone. Oh my god. And proceeded to walk over. Robin told him to get back in the van. Five minutes later, Robin returned to the van, holding a knife and a severed breast. Jesus. However, Thomas Cocorialis tells a different story when they interrogate him. So you'll hear that version a little later on. Over the next four months, several other women are found dead in Chicago or like other surrounding areas. And in each case, their valuables had been left behind, but their bodies were mutilated in the same ritualistic way. Oh my God. Some women were hacked with axes. 
Oh my God. Some women had their faces completely beaten in. But in every case, the left breast was removed. And in most of these cases, they determined that the victims were still alive as their breast was being amputated. Oh my God. They had been dumped under bridges, in alleyways, and in the forest preserves surrounding the city. Oh my God. On May 29th, they abducted Shuey Mack from Hanover Park, a village kind of northwest of Villa Park, so mm-hmm. it was still kind of in the area. She was last seen alive at 1 a.m. She left her brother's car on Barrington Road following an argument, so she decided to walk. According to Edwards' testimony, he was riding in the van with Robin at 2 a.m. after they spotted this woman on the side of the road. He was told to go to the rear of the van. They proceeded to drive for 15 to 20 minutes, and there were two taps on the floor, and Edward left the rear of the van with a knife and a roll of wire. Oh, my God. Get pulled the woman out the van, punched her in her face and her ribs, and dragged her body a short distance to some bushes in, like, an isolated wooded area. Edward then lifted the woman's sweater and stabbed her three or four times with a kitchen knife. Andrew said that he became ill and went back to the van. Then, Edward proceeded to hold a wire around her neck while Robin cut her breast. Oh my god. He then told Edward to get a jagged edge knife from the van. When he returned with the knife, Get had his penis in the woman's chest wounds. Oh my god. When finished, Robin then took the knife from Edward and used it to repeatedly cut her abdomen. Feeling nauseated, Edward then returned to the van. And it wasn't long until Get soon returned and they drove away together. Her skeletal remains were found four months later in a wooded area near a new housing development construction in South Barrington, Illinois. In the northwest part of Cook County. Gotcha. The victim was clothed, but her sweater and the zipper on her slacks had been torn. I'm probably going to butcher this name. If I do, I'm sorry. Dr. Eppel Choi, a pathologist employed by the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, performed an autopsy on October 1st, 1982. Dr. Choi found multiple fractures of the victim's skull, which he attributed to trauma from a blunt instrument. Dr. Choi also found two superficial fractures of the sixth and seventh ribs on the left side in the high stomach area. Oh, my God. And a cut along her arm following the left forearm bone. The cause of death was blunt trauma to the head and fractures of the ribs. Dr. Choi said that he did not find evidence of stab wounds, though he was unable to eliminate stabbing as a possible cause of the victim's rib injuries. So basically, she was alive the entire time they were doing all of this to her. Oh my god. One source revealed that two weeks after they abducted Mac, they picked up Angel York. Now, I couldn't find Angel York in any of the court documents, but this is what I found from one source which will be included in the show notes. They picked up Angel York, handcuffed her, and slashed her breast before throwing her out of the van. Still alive. Oh my god. She survived the attack on June 13th. Angel's description of her attackers failed to produce any leads, and I was unable to find any further information regarding her. The gang did not strike again for two months. Fifth victim was Sandra Delaware. On August 27, 1982, her body was found under the Fullerton Avenue Bridge on the bank of the Chicago River. 
According to Edward, he and Robin were driving in the van looking for a prostitute. When they were near North Avenue and the Chicago River, Get told him to get into the rear of the van. A woman entered the van and spoke with Robin about sex. The van stopped and Robin signaled those two taps. So he left the van holding a knife and met Get at the front passenger door like before. Robin pulled the woman out the van, removed her clothes, and handcuffed her while he held her arms. Oh, my God. Robin then had vaginal intercourse with the woman while she performed an oral sex act on Edward. Okay. Robin asked him if he was having fun, in which he replied no. So then Robin asked him what he was going to do about it. Then Edward stabbed the woman twice in the chest with his pocket knife. Feeling nauseated, he returned to the van. Get them returned to the van with the handcuffs and the knife. That whole feeling nauseated is such bullshit. Like, if it nauseates you, then I don't know. Stop fucking doing it. Right. Sources say her wrists and ankles were bound with shoelaces and a ligature was used around her neck. An autopsy revealed that the cause of her death was ligature strangulation and an abdominal stab wound which penetrated her liver. Oh my god. 30-year-old Rose Beck Davis was employed by a Chicago area business in marketing and sales. And during the evening of September 7th, 1982, she was with a client. Mrs. Davis last spoke with her husband around 10.30 that night when she called to tell him that she would be home. She was a businesswoman known for her independence and outspokenness. Okay. And Miss Davis, her body was found the next morning. Oh my god. September 8th, in a gangway between two buildings on North Lake Shore Drive in Chicago. According to police officers who were called to the scene, a black sock or stocking was tied tightly around the victim's neck, and there was a similar ligature on one of her arms. She was lying on her back, her sweater was raised, and her bra had been ripped off. There were two or three slash wounds across her breasts. Her slacks and underpants were around her ankles. There was blood found in the vaginal area, although another source says her anal cavity was assaulted and her face had been beaten in or crushed beyond recognition. Oh my God. Rose's face was covered with blood and blood had been splattered on the side of the building next to where she was found, suffering almost identical wounds to Delaware. Oh my God. Dr. Stein, chief medical examiner of Cook County, performed an autopsy on Rose Beck Davis on September 9th, 1982. His external examination revealed a variety of injuries. The following is quoted by the court documents and Dr. Stein's findings. He found ligatures knotted around the victim's neck and around one of her wrists. The victim's face was badly swollen from blunt trauma and her nose was disfigured in comminuted fractures. For those that don't know what that means, a comminuted fracture is a type of broken bone. The term comminuted fracture refers to a bone that is broken in at least two places. They are caused by severe traumas like car accidents. These are bones that need surgery to be repaired. Gotcha. So Dr. Stein found a puncture wound in the lower part of her neck. And there were two extensive slash wounds across her chest from her armpits inward across each breast. Oh, my God. There were also three contusions below the navel and contusions and abrasions on her back and wrist. 
An internal examination revealed the presence of a four-inch long piece of wood in the victim's vagina. Oh, my God. The wood perforated the vagina and entered the abdominal cavity. So, according to Dr. Stein, the evidence established that the victim had been beaten, stabbed, strangled, and impaled with an object. Oh, my fucking God. Andrew Kokorialis revealed in his testimony that they hit her in the face with the back of the hatchet. So, that's what disfigured her face. Oh, my God. And later inserted the handle of the hatchet into her vagina. Oh, my God. And they shoved it inside her with such force that it ripped through the walls of her vagina into her abdominal cavity. So that's what perforated her vagina. Jesus fucking Christ. The crew's sixth and seventh victims were Rafael Tirado, a local drug dealer, and his friend, 18-year-old Alberto Rosario. They were both shot on October 6th, 1982 while standing near the corner of Damon and Lemoyne in Chicago. They were at a phone booth in a random drive-by shooting. According to Spritzer, he was driving with Get when the older man, Raphael, told him to slow down. Get took two guns, a thirty-eight caliber pistol, and a rifle from the rear of the van, told Spritzer to stop, and then opened fire on Toronto and Rosario. Oh, my God. I know that's like all I'm saying is, oh, my God. But literally, it's taking everything in me to pick my stomach up out of my fucking asshole. So I apologize. This is just fucking horrific. Toronto shot once in the head and once in the neck, died from these wounds. Rosario was taken to the hospital and survived. They were the gang's only male victims. Oh, my God. And from the court testimony they said that they were going to quote get them some n-word oh my god what disgusting pieces of human shit like we're and it's amazing to me that these people all have the like mind and they're all doing this stuff like what are the chances it's more so actually like a ringleader type situation where he calls all the shots and everybody else does what he says. So almost a year and a half after Linda was discovered in Villa Park, investigators in DuPage County received a call from Chicago PD. On December 6, 1982, Beverly Washington was found and was their eighth victim. Get again picked up a woman, signaled the two taps, and was met by Spritzer. Beverly was high from the pills they had given her, and they removed her clothes. Under a bridge near some railroad tracks, Get cut off one of her breasts and placed his penis into the wound. Oh my, that makes me sick to my fucking stomach. Edward took a jagged-edged knife from the van and gave it to Get, then returned to the van. So he didn't stick around for this one. Ten minutes later, Get returned, and they drove away. She had been left for dead. Her body was beaten and bruised. Her chest had multiple slash wounds across it, and her left breast had been amputated. Despite her injuries, though, and massive blood loss, Washington was alive. Oh, my God. And she was placed in critical condition. Oh, my God. She survived it. She stayed alive long enough until someone found her. Oh, my God. That's fucking... 
I mean, it's incredible, really. But, but I couldn't find the name of anyone who found her. Gotcha. All we know is that someone found her and police were notified. So when investigators went to speak to her, the only way she could communicate was by signals and a piece of paper for her to write on. She gave a detailed description of the man who attacked her. He handcuffed her and forced her to swallow pills. He then took what she described as a piano wire and wrapped it around her breast. Oh he, my God, this poor girl. This poor girl. He continued to pull and tighten the wire around her breast until the pain was so great she passed out. She woke up in the hospital. She also gave a detailed description of the van he was driving. It was an older red van that had a plywood partition built behind the front seats. Can you guys hear, sir? Can you hear him meowing? He's definitely going fucking off right now. <laughs> okay, so to continue, he wrapped this wire around her breast and he pulled it. She passed out. She also gave a detailed description of the van he was driving. It was an older red van that had a plywood partition built behind the front seats to separate the front and the back of the van. She also mentioned a roach clip that had a blue and a white feather hanging from it, like dangling from the rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. Immediately, police put an APB out for the van. So do you remember Lori that I talked about earlier? Yes. And uh, she's the daughter of the clips from the mother that we have. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I remember her name. Five days after Beverly Washington was found and in the hospital, Lori's body was found in a cemetery in Darien. Oh, my God. This cemetery in particular had already been searched for her remains. How did they not find her? Was she hidden or? No clue. So this next clip is from Lori's mother again. And this clip is talking about the discovery of her daughter. Again, this is from the same documentary. This clip is about six seconds long, so you can skip forward if you need to. My heart's wrenching already. Playing clip now. I was 10 feet from her body and didn't know it. I, I didn't know it. I am trying very hard not to just cry, if you want to be honest. That's, that's heavy. Yeah. That's really fucking heavy. Yeah. That poor woman, I, I have no words. Her skeletal remains were discovered on October 10th, 1982, in an unused portion of the cemetery. She was about 120 to 130 feet from a gravel road. Lori's blouse had been raised to armpit level, and her bra had been lowered. A purse was found some 30 feet away, and items of jewelry were found on or near her body. Oh my god. Frank Orlowski, a physical anthropologist, he's the one that examined Lori's remains on October 11th. That's my birthday, <laughs> which is like, you know, not to just insert that, but when you hear the date of your birthday, it compels you to say that is your birthday. Exactly. So, yay. <laughs> he was asked to determine signs of trauma that might be related to a cause of death, and this is his findings. When he located the right nipple, the skin ended two inches below where the left nipple should have been located. Oh, my God. Her nipple was gone. Oh, my God. He found no trauma in the left breast area, although he acknowledged a clean cut in the area of the left breast would leave no signs of mutilation or trauma. So, 
as we know, Get would have sex with the hole gotcha. where the breast had been. Ugh. So what he's stating is, so there was two inches cut off of her skin, including her nipple, big enough to put a hole into. Oh, my God. To insert Ugh. and have intercourse. Oh, my God. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Orlowski detected primary trauma on the sternum. He observed a circular frontal entrance wound in the upper part of the bone and an exit wound on the other side. Sharp bone spines protruded inward from circular en- from the circular entrance and the exit wound. Oh my god. So they, it was enough force to splinter the bone outward from the impact. Oh my god. Two millimeters in diameter. That's the size of these holes. Two millimeters in diameter. Holy shit. They were observed on the second left and right ribs. Oh my god. Injury to the sixth and seventh thoracic nasal bone was fractured. Orlowski stated in his examination, it was revealed that some of these entrance wounds were actually in the victim's back. Oh my god. In Orlowski's opinion, the circular wounds were caused by a small circular object like an ice pick. Holy shit. You're not going to believe this. But ten days later, Chicago police spotted a red van with tinted windows driving down the city streets. When they pulled the van over, they noticed the plywood partition and a roach clip hanging with one blue feather and one white one. Yeah, so their fucking asses got fucking got good. The driver was 21-year-old Edward Spritzer, who appeared at the time to be very jumpy and, like, very nervous. So he tells the police that the van isn't his. It's his boss, Robin Gett. So investigators visited Robin Gett, and the minute he stepped foot outside, they saw that he matched the description of Washington's assailant. So both Robin Gett and the description of the van perfectly matched the description she had given. Oh my God. Which is amazing considering the fact she was on a ventilator. She had tubes down her throat. She couldn't speak. And she was writing on a piece of paper or using signals like blinking and stuff like that. Oh wow. She was able to give that accurate of a description. That is incredible. She is a badass. Patron saint of badassery. So, under questioning, Get was calm and collected. He seemed like a normal guy. He claimed he had no knowledge of Washington's attack, and he was at home with his wife and three kids. See, when we did the Dorothea Puente case, I pointed out, like, with her, a phenomenon that terrifies the fuck out of me when you're dealing with people with psychopathic personalities. Just no emotion. The way that they can literally do this shit and then turn it off in a way... And just be calm and straight-faced and confident. Like, like oh, th- yeah, that never happened. Like, exactly. That is fucking... That is one of the things that I think scare me so much about a lot of these people that we hear about in these cases. It's just how... How the fuck do you even begin to put yourself to be calm after you've completely brutalized and horrifically killed someone, if not multiple people? The fact that scares me is that he has a wife and three kids. Yeah, no shit, that too. Like, what the fuck? But then again, you know, BTK, Dennis Rader, he also had kids in a family, and they literally had no fucking idea what he was doing. Like, his daughters said that he was a good dad, and that's just fucking, like, mind-blowing. So get this. 
Police wanted to put him in a lineup, but with Beverly still in critical condition, they brought the lineup to her hospital room. Hell yeah. Well, I mean, I bet that's traumatizing, but at the same time, like, get his ass. This wonderful, brave woman immediately picked him out of the lineup. She picked him out without hesitation, and she was visibly terrified and somewhat hysterical. She was reacting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Poor so she fucking completely girl. broke down the minute she saw him. Get was taken into custody and booked on several charges, including aggravated battery and deviant sexual assault. Unfortunately, Get posted bond and subsequently disappeared. What? By that point, many, many women had come forward with chilling tales of the sheer torture they said Robin Get inflicted on them. Most of the instances included some form of breast mutilation with needles and knives. Oh, my God. Several women said Get had asked them to cut off their own nipple because Robin wanted to see how they worked. What? Even an ex-girlfriend comes forward to state that he would demand that she cut off her own nipple. And if she didn't do it, he said, and I quote, someone else would. Well, that's fucked. Wow. Armed with this knowledge, they put out a warrant for Robin Getz's arrest. It was during this time that investigators began to consider if he had any accomplices. They suspected, like, Edward had to be involved somehow. They brought him in the interview. They think that, you know, if Robin is into this and he's doing this, Edward is his employee. He must know something. Yeah, there's a chance that he would possibly know something anyway. During the interview with Edward, they managed to break him down almost immediately. It was like the floodgates had opened. What he reveals is sinister. Oh my god. Every one of their attacks ended with a cannibalistic ceremony. What? These men took the breasts they had removed from their victims and went back to Get's house because he had an altar in the attic of his northwest side home where they gathered during the evening hours, like after his wife had gone to work. So supposedly he had painted six red and six black crosses on the walls and covered the altar with a red cloth. Thomas told the police that they would all kneel together around the altar and Get would produce the freshly removed breast. He would read passages from the Satanic Bible or chant as they ate pieces of this breast. Oh my fucking God. They then took the breast, what was left of it. And as, like I said, as he was reading passages from the Satanic Bible or chanting, they would also masturbate into this fleshy piece of oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god can we have can we have like a like a like a fluff Fluff fact fact. we need a fluff fact i can't do it fluff fact fluff fact fluff fact hi beautiful you're very brave and we appreciate you listening today i'm bringing you a fluff fact a fluff fact being something we use to diffuse a situation when we're talking about something that's a wee bit too intense for us today's fluff fact It's about our beautiful home state of Georgia. Did you know the state bird of Georgia is in fact the mosquito? And the state flower of Georgia is the more commonly occurring Dollar General. Thanks for listening. Back to the case. Whatever was left of the breast after they had 
done these ceremonies. It was rumored that they kept it in a box in Robin Gett's attic. According to the rumor, there were 15 breasts in this box. Oh my fucking God. On a side note, I actually researched into the Satanic Bible. And this is what I found that seemed relevant. Relevant in a way that this is what they could have read and said, okay, challenge accepted. Like it's how they interpreted it, basically. Exactly. Kind of like a Richard Ramirez situation because he too also kind of used Satanism as fuel to like the things that he did. You know, he just interpreted it in a fucking wild fucking way. Well, anytime you're dealing with a religious text, everyone is going to have a different perception, as you said. Everyone perceives religious texts in a different way. Yeah, that Where is very one true. person may see hate, another person may see love. Gotcha. That I mean, that is true. That is true. So the Satanic Bible is a collection of essays, observations, and rituals published by Anton LaVey in 1969. It is the central religious text for LaVeyan Satanism. Mm-hmm. And is considered the foundation of its philosophy and dogma. So seeing as this was in the 80s, this was probably the only version of the Satanic Bible that was around at that time. Gotcha. The Satanic Bible is composed of four books. The Book of Satan, the Book of Lucifer, the Book of Belial, and the Book of Leviathan. The Book of Satan challenges the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and promotes Epicureanism. The Book of Lucifer holds most of the philosophy in the Satanic Bible, with 12 chapters discussing topics such as indulgence, love, hate, and sex. LaVey also uses the book to dispel rumors surrounding the religion. In the Book of Belial, LaVey details rituals and magic. He discusses the required mindset and focus for performing a ritual and provides instructions for three rituals, those for sex, compassion, or destruction. The Book of Leviathan provides four invocations for Satan, lust, compassion, and destruction as well. Okay. In my research, I managed to find a PDF of the entire book, and the book itself puts an emphasis on symbolically destroying or killing their victim, who they want to throw hexes or curse at. Let's say that one more time. Symbolically. Symbolically. Not actually killing people. The following passages come from chapter 9 of the book of Lucifer. Passage 1. The white magician, wary of the consequences involved in the killing of a human being, naturally utilizes birds or other quote-unquote lower creatures in his ceremonies. It seems these sanctimonious wretches feel no guilt in the taking of non-human life as opposed to a human's. The fact of the matter is that if the magician is worthy of his name, he will be uninhibited enough to release the necessary force from his own body instead of from an unwilling or undeserving victim. Gotcha. Passage 2. The use of a human sacrifice in a satanic ritual does not imply that the sacrifice is slaughtered to appease the gods. Symbolically, the victim is destroyed through the working of a hex or a curse which in turn leads to the physical, mental, or emotional destruction of the sacrifice in ways and means not attributed to the magician. Gotcha. Three, the only time a Satanist would perform a human sacrifice would be if there were to serve a twofold purpose. 
That being to release the magician's wrath into the throwing of a curse, and more important, to dispose of a totally obnoxious and deserving individual. That oh, part, wow. That's pretty extreme. That part gave me chills because in Get's mind, these women were deserving individuals. Remember, he was like, we're going to go out and go get some whores. Exactly. It's fucking sickening. Four. Contrary to all established magical theory, the release of this force is not affected in the actual spilling of blood, but in the death throes of the living creature. The fact that a dying creature is expending an overabundance of adrenaline and other biochemical energies, and you have what appears to be an unbeatable combination. This discharge of bioelectrical energy is the very same phenomenon which occurs during any profound heightening of emotions, such as sexual orgasm, blind anger, mortal terror, consuming grief, etc. Any of the extremes of the emotions, pretty right. much. This passage, I can't remember what section I pulled this from, but it mentions the following. Masturbation, considered a sexual taboo by many people, creates a guilt problem not easily dealt with. Much emphasis must be placed on this subject as it constitutes an extremely important ingredient of many successful magical works, which would be the human seed mm -hmm. life. When I read that, it made me think that they were trying to perform some sort of sacrifice, obviously, or magical work by the act of masturbating into the breast. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, well, if you don't know me in person, then you don't know. But speaking to you, you know, I've been studying different forms of witchcraft and yes. paganism for a very long time. I consider myself a witch. And when you study sex magic, the point of orgasm is actually a sacred energy abundant point of release for doing spell work so right. i mean that makes sense to me at least in the it makes sense to me in the ways of i see where they would have read this because i mean it is a powerful thing the human orgasm yeah. and then this would be their own evil fucked up way of like incorporating it but it makes sense to me at least on that note because of my own you know religious and spiritual beliefs fun so. fact the French actually call an orgasm le petite morte, the little death. That's actually kind of cool. I definitely don't know French, but I like it nonetheless. So we're going to go back to the investigation. The little death. <laughs> the little death. <laughs> <laughs> Edward confesses to the murder of seven women, including Borowski. During this confession, he names Andrew Cocorialis, who was at the time 19 years old. Oh, my God. So these guys were so young. Yes. I mean, Jesus, it wouldn't matter if they were young or not. But just the fact that they're like years, years younger than me is just like fucking wow. So they bring Andrew in for questioning and he tells on himself immediately during a confession to having committed 18 murders, including Linda Sutton and Lori Borowski. 18? Yes. He then went on to say that Robin had had a longtime interest in Satanism and would read books on torture practices of ancient cultures. He stated that Robin was fascinated how some ancient cultures cut off the breasts of women and saved them to make tobacco pouches. Oh, my God. And Amazonian women, their breasts were removed so that breast would not hinder them pulling back their bow and arrow. 
Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I did. I mean, that that still makes my stomach want to fall through my asshole. But I mean, you know, we we respect all cultures here. Investigators then interview Andrew's brother, Thomas, who also immediately told on himself. He told them that they raped, tortured, and murdered Lori Borowski. Remember when I said he had a different version of events? Yeah. He said they tied her down and gagged her. They brutally beat her face. Then they raped her. When they were finished, Robin pulled out a wire garrote. Do you know what a garrote is? I actually was just about to ask because I don't know what that is. So a garrote is like two pieces of wood that you would put in your hands and the wire goes from one piece to the other. Oh, it's like a saw, basically. I do know what that is. So you can have leverage. Oh my God. My stomach is falling through my asshole. (laughs) So Robin pulled out a wire garrote and wrapped it around Lori's left breast. He was very specific to say left breast. He would then begin to pull, tighten, and squeeze the wire around her breasts until it fell off. Oh, my fucking God. He would then have sex with the wound. Afterward, they took an axe and began to chop at the hole left behind. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. In that same way, like trying to conceal what they had done. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. All of which was supposedly done in the same exact motel room where they murdered Linda Sutton. Jesus fucking Christ. However, I did some digging and motel staff testified and claimed they didn't find anything that would even alert suspicion. No sheets, no no wire, no nothing. So they had their shit like set up to not be caught. They were smart about it, unfortunately. Thomas said that he had witnessed two murders himself and had participated in nearly a dozen such rituals. Fucking Christ. When the detectives asked why he had done such macabre and illegal activities. He told them in all seriousness, all seriousness, that Get had power to make them do whatever he wanted. That just sent fucking chills up my spine. Quote unquote, you just have to do it, he said with conviction. Apparently, he was convinced that Get had some supernatural connection, and he was afraid of what Get might do to him if he did not do as he was told. Okay. The media dubbed the group as the Chicago Ripper Crew. In 1984, Spritzer, in a bid for leniency, pleaded guilty to murder in the deaths of Shuey Mack, Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, and Raphael Tirado, as well as attempted murder, aggravated kidnapping deviant sexual assault and rape he was sentenced to life in prison without parole good fucking rot in 1986 spritzer was convicted of murder and aggravated kidnapping in the death of linda sutton the prosecution sought a death sentence during the sentencing phase spritzer's attorney carol anfinson argued he was immature impulsive and simplistic and was following orders of the gang's leader She Mm. described him as a lonely person who would do almost anything to please his friend. The prosecution described Spritzer as every woman's nightmare, calling the gang cowardly weasels who roamed in packs to prey on women. I agree with that. Fucking pigs. Spritzer was sentenced to death. Good. They should have fried his ass. Take him out to the fucking woodshed now. <laughs> Straight to the woodshed with your ass. <laughs> Thomas Kokorialis was convicted of murder and rape in the death of Lorraine Borowski, 
as a reward for his detailed confession, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. On appeal, Thomas's rape conviction was reversed, and he won a new trial on his murder conviction, rather than face a retrial. Thomas pleaded guilty to Borowski's murder in exchange for a 70-year sentence. Charges in the murder of Linda Sutton were dismissed as part of a plea agreement, which I think is just... The system failed. Yeah, I don't think anybody that does shit like this should be getting special protection or deals in any way, but that's just me. Thomas was scheduled to be paroled on September 30th, 2017, but was denied release after he failed to find an approved place to live. Good. He was released from prison on March 29th, 2019. Oh, God. In an interview with WBBM-TV... Thomas proclaimed his innocence, saying, Everybody thinks I'm a monster. I'm not a monster. I don't know. I beg to differ, but I guess there's gray area there. I just don't believe that he was being forced to do anything. I just, there's no fucking way. I just don't see it. I'm going to insert a very tiny clip of this interview for you. Like I said, it's from WBBMTV, and it's going to be very short, maybe like 30 seconds. Okay. But this is just, I don't know, it's ridiculous to me. And I thought you guys would like to hear it. Playing clip now. Everybody thinks I'm a, I'm a monster. I'm much calmer now. I'm nicer. Not mean. I just have a bad attitude. If I don't want to talk to them. You there's don't just, want to talk to them. No, the, there's nothing that you want to say to that family. No, I just, I just want to say that I'm, I, feel, I feel for them. I feel sorry for them. And I'm praying for them. Meanwhile, his brother, Andrew Kokorialis, was convicted of murder, aggravated kidnapping, and rape in the death of Rose Davis in 1985. The prosecution sought a death sentence. During the sentencing phase, Andrew's attorney said his client had been a follower, not an organizer, not the prime mover, in Davis's murder. The jury spared Andrew's life after deliberating for 90 minutes, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Good, which I think there's a lot of gray area in terms of, you know, where and when we think the death sentence is a good or a bad thing, because it has been a mistake several times. But I think it would be a better punishment, actually, for these pieces of shit to actually just stay alive and suffer and live the rest of their life in prison versus just getting the easy way out. See, I respect that, but my different view is, is why are you wasting taxpayers' dollars to fund their life in prison for the rest of their life, they should be taken out. I mean, that's this is definitely two sides, two valid sides of the same cake. I right. mean, hey, you know, they both make sense. On March 18th, 1987, Andrew was convicted of murder and aggravated kidnapping in the death of Lorraine Borowski. He was sentenced to death on April 30th, 1987, and executed by lethal injection on March 17th, 1999. Yet, the only member of the gang to maintain his innocence was never tried for any of the murders due to a lack of evidence. What? In 1983, he was convicted of attempted murder, aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assaults, and rape for the non-fatal rape and assault of Beverly Washington. Get was sentenced to 120 years in prison. Before sentencing Get, though, Judge Francis C. Mohan told him only a devil would do these things. Yeah, and I mean, I agree. <laughs> he also said an animal would not do these things. A monster would. He pointed, I agree. 
He pointed out that Get had left Washington for dead and was lucky to not be on trial for murder. Yeah. Get is serving his sentence at Maynard Correctional Center. His projected parole date is October 10th, 2042. Should he live long enough? Which hopefully he won't, but that's just me. <laughs> Get will be 88 years old when he is released from prison. He maintains his innocence, as I said, to this day. And I quote, I don't only face the injustices, but the nightmares that follow. You have no idea the pain and hurt I face and feel every single day. I sit here and lose hope. I'm not an angel, but I never intentionally hurt anyone unless it was to protect myself or my family. I could never live with killing or knowing I was responsible for taking one's life. Geck's family, especially his wife, are 100% behind him, believe in his innocence, and look forward to the day when he will be free. So that basically concludes the Chicago River case. I absolutely never want to think about this again for as long as I live. It's bad, right? Again, like I said in the beginning of the episode, I knew nothing about this case. I went in completely blind just then. <laughs> and that's absolutely so fucking horrific. And then that clip at the end of them interviewing uh, Thomas. Yeah. Thomas Coco Grealis. Yeah. Have I said that right? That was just fucking absurd to me. Like it absolutely sent chills up my spine i don't believe him for one fucking second i don't believe him either i don't believe that there's i just don't i'm sorry like listening to the way that he spoke about it i'm still trying to pick my asshole up off the floor so <laughs> but thank you guys so, so much for listening watch cartoons oh definitely time to go watch fucking cartoons i never again in my life ever want to again think about that so we're definitely going to go watch cartoons <laughs> after this so, um, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and listening and just being here with us. We appreciate you so much. We love you guys. So make sure you check in on us on our socials on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. On Twitter at Gore Report. Gore Report. So, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week with one of my cases. And we're going to go watch cartoons now. Okay, bye. Bye. Are you afraid? You shot me. You blushed me.